Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your very first time, a special welcome, whether you're here in our worship center or joining us out on the patio. Uh, we're going to be going to our time of teaching, and, and like uh, Tim said, if you haven't done already, make sure you reach inside your program. There's a green and white message note sheet we use every week, so you'll definitely want to take that out. But uh, before we, we kind of go into a time of teaching and prayer, just you know, one special thing, as we mentioned at the top of the service, obviously this is an important uh, weekend in the life of our nation. As we look back on this devastating uh, kind of attack 20 years ago, um, at uh, the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and so on. And uh, I, I don't know if you remember, if you, I, my hunch is if you're like middle school up, uh, maybe even younger, but you remember where you were. Uh, I remember that, that morning I was scheduled to teach that weekend. I was at my previous church and I was scheduled to teach that weekend. And uh, I remember, you know, watching that video that the morning of, of kind of what, what was happening there, watching the TV and, uh, and just, you know, I, I just knew all of a sudden, it's like, hey, whatever I was planning for this weekend has got to change. You know, this is, this is a historic moment. And, and what do you say uh, in a time of, of devastating loss? And uh, that weekend, I ended up teaching on Psalm 46 about the, the, there's a, a river that flows through the city of God, and it will not be shaken no matter what. And, and it was just, you know, chances are you remember where you were when that was happening. And of course, for many of us, it's 20 years later and it's long gone. But for those families, for those friends, for those brothers, the sisters, the, the, the parents, the children who lost someone there, uh, it's, uh, it's a very, it's, it's been a painful 20 years. And so um, we want to pray today. I uh, want to pray for that. We also want to pray just for our nation. You know, this continues to be such a um, kind of a troubling time for our nation. Amen. It's like we, we are a nation that you, you would hope that an event as tragic as that was would help you kind of a wake-up call for our nation, but you look at where we are today, I think we're at a worse place today than we were there, a nation far from God. And so I don't know about you, but whenever I pray for our nation, I always start with a prayer of repentance. You know, I always start with, God, God would you forgive us and would you send a spirit of repentance? Because I, I don't believe that God can bless any nation that is living in rebellion, you know? So to pray for blessing when we're living in rebellion is, is kind of like Israel in the Old Testament. God, would you bless us, you know, bless us. And he's like, hey, what about this and this and this? And, and so, so I wanna lead us in prayer for our nation. Obviously here in California, we've got an important election this week. We wanna pray for that. You know, the Bible says that God raises up and he takes down. And so we just wanna commit this, this important uh, election to the Lord. Um, he's much wiser than we are. He knows the big picture. He knows what he wants to do. And just encourage you as well, as I did last week, that as believers, I think it's important for us to participate in our culture, to bring our perspective to bear uh, what is right and just and true. And just encourage you to be voting this week if you haven't done that already. So we're gonna go into our time of teaching, but I just wanna pray us in as we pray for our nation and then pray as well for this time together. Let's pray together. So Father, we just come in this kind of historic weekend. It's an anniversary of, of just tragic loss, um, uh, a, a loss that led our nation down a path, whether for good or for evil, but we just think of those uh, friends, family members that today still look back and their lives have been shattered forever um, by this event. And so we just pray that you bring comfort and healing, you draw them to yourself. And then Lord, we just, we take this opportunity to pray for our nation. Lord, and as a church, you've told us to pray for kings and those that are in authority that we might live kind of devout lives in peace. And 
So Lord, we just want to pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. Um, Father, we pray for a spiritual awakening in our country, in our nation, that there would be a turning back, a hunger for you. We pray for your churches all through this land. You'd be raising up godly leaders to to lead us uh, into the future that you have for us. Um, We pray that, um, we, we really do pray for that spirit of repentance you, you talk about in your scriptures that that would be poured out on our land and that we would turn back to you in such a way that you could bless us again. And Father, we pray in particular for our state this week with an important election. You know what you're doing. You know what you're up to. You want us, what you want us to see happen. And so, Lord, we just pray that as your people that we would come and we would join you today. We'd say that it's our desire that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we just pray that your will would be done this weekend um, as we seek you for, for direction uh, in these uh, challenging times. And so, Father, we come today as your church to, to open your word now, Lord, and you said that your word is truth. It's the way you sanctify us. It's the way you purify us. It's the way you transform us, and it's the way you prune us that we might bear more fruit. And so, Lord, we pray that today, that as we're opening up this uh, scripture, that you will be speaking and your voice will be the loudest voice in our head. And then, as always, that we will listen and then follow so we can be transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, our story starts today in the back room of their home. And it's just the two of them there. And this is where the body has been taken earlier in the day when he died. And by this time, the news is out, and so friends and family from the community is coming to mourn with them. And of course, as friends and family often do at times like this, they offered to help. But they knew that this wasn't a task that they could delegate to others. This was something they needed to do. And so that's why the two of them are here alone in this back room. They've got the basin of water. They have the spices. They have the the grave burial cloth. And it's time for them to start preparing the body. And so they start by undressing him taking off the clothes that he died in. And next they begin to gently wash him from head to toe. And once it's done, they begin to sprinkle spices all over the body that will help hide the, the odor that will soon be start to come from his decaying flesh. And once that's done, they carefully lift his body and they place it on the long burial cloth and they carefully wrap up the long end back up over his body, up to his neck. And then they begin to attach it to his body with the strips of fabric that have been prepared for this purpose. And finally, they, they take the, the grave cloth for his head. They put it behind his head and then gently over his face. It's the last time they'll see that face. And they tie it securely to the hat so it will not come off in transport. 
Now the time has come that they've been dreading all week. It's time for them to lead the procession as they place his body on the carts and they take it out of town to their family tomb at the edge of town where they'll say their final goodbyes and then roll away the stone that will cover the entrance but will also keep them out forever. Well, today we are continuing this series that we've been in. It's funny, I've been saying the last couple months, six or seven months, but I was looking and it's been uh, since last January, like January 17th. And, um, and so this is a series, it's called Signs, uh, The Path to Life. And for those who are brand new, a special welcome to you. Uh, this, is a, this is a series about Jesus. It's really an in-depth look at the life of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and friends, a man named John, or the Apostle John, who towards the end of his life write, writes his account of the life and teaching of Jesus based on his firsthand experiences and traveling with Jesus over that two or three years. And if you were here last week, uh, we, we delved into one of the most important events in the life of Jesus. And we watched last week as Jesus had, had traveled away from Jerusalem. There was a threat on his life. And so for the last two or three months, he's been at least a day, maybe two days journey away out in the desert. And uh, he receives a, a message from some, from some very close friends of his, uh, two sisters who live in the town of Bethany right outside of Jerusalem. And the message is that the one that you love, their brother Lazarus, is sick. And so Jesus doesn't respond like you'd expect him to respond. He doesn't, he doesn't drop everything like he normally does and says, I, I need to go and heal him. He doesn't speak a word of healing from a distance. He, he just makes a strange pronouncement that this sickness will not end in death. It, it will actually lead to the glory of God. And then he delays for two days before doing anything and then tells his disciples, let's go back. And by the time they arrive, that he's, he's died. And so as we looked at last week, this is likely very confusing to these sisters who are very close. What does this saying mean that it will not end in death and yet now he's died? Why did he delay? Why didn't he come? And so today we're going to pick up the story as Jesus arrives in Bethany, having traveled a day or two to get there. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your, uh, your apps, let's go ahead and open up. Turn to uh, chapter 11 of John's Gospel. We're going to pick it up at verse 17, where we left off last week. So in chapter 11, verse 17, it says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. So we talked about this last week, uh, determining the exact chronology of when Jesus left, how far he was away, not always super clear. But what we know for sure is that when he arrives, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. So I want you to try to picture what life was like during those four days. One of the things I shared with you last week is that in the ancient Israel, that when someone would die, typically they would bury the body the same day. And the reason for that is that uh, Jews did not embalm bodies like the Egyptians, and so the decay factor would set in very rapidly. It was a fairly warm climate, uh, climate most of the year. And uh, so, th so they would uh, very, very soon begin to put spices on the body to 
uh, to kind of cover the, 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 the horrendous smell that was going to be coming in the decomposition process. And they would tend to bury the, the, the very day, the very same day. And so this takes us back to the story we started the day with, you know, about these, these two women in this back room of their house, and they have the, the corpse there, the, the man who's died earlier in the day, and many have offered to help, and yet they, they want to do this themselves. Now, this is me sort of reading into the text a little bit. We don't have all the details, but my hunch would be that these two sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, they love their brother very much. I'm sure they're not going to delegate this responsibility of preparing the body to someone else. So whether there were others there or not, we don't know. But the process that I detailed in the opening story would have been very much what it was like. There's going to be a washing of the body. There's going to be anointing with spices to hold down the horrendous smell. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever smelled a decomposing body. Uh, chances are most of us haven't. I mean, we're, we live in a culture that really separates ourselves from death. You know, that's someone else's business. I, I remember that uh, I have a friend that I was talking with her about uh, six months, a year ago, and uh, she was talking about something that happened in her extended family, that she had a, they had an extended relative, a very old lady who lived by herself alone, and she died in her room, uh, died in her house by herself, and they didn't discover the body for three or four days. And so when her relatives went into, and they found, they said the stench in the house was overwhelming. It was the worst thing they'd ever smelled in their life. And even after the body was taken away, that smell permeated the entire house. In fact, she said that in the coming weeks when her, these relatives would go to, to clean out her things and to clear out the house, get it ready for sale, that after they'd be working there, then they'd come home, they, they, they'd take off their clothes, they'd wash them, and when they, when they came out, the, the stench was still there. They had to throw them away. So it's sort of, we're sort of out of touch with this, you know, like this is not, but so they, they would anoint the body with spices to hold this down. And then they would, they would put the body on a grave cloth. I used to be a painter. So I think of it like a, like a long runner, like a long cloth runner that maybe is, you know, several feet wide. And so they, you'd, you'd put the body on that after you'd anointed it. And then you'd take the, the long end and you carefully fold back right up to the neck. And then you would attach with strips of fabric so it would stay secure. You put a special head, uh, head piece on, a grave cloth on, uh, and you would attach that. So now you can no longer see any part of the body. And so that, that's what would have happened. And then, and then there would have been a procession out to the edge of town where the, the family grave watch, which sounds like it was, uh, I've seen many of these in Israel, sounds like it was a, a cave dug in the side of a hill. Uh, and once you, that, that cave was dug, uh, you take the body, the body in, there would be a flat niche carved out of the wall where the body would be laid. Uh, and then, uh, and then after, uh, after you've laid the body, you would, you would have a huge stone, often that would look like a, uh, like a big checker, you know, like a big round stone that would be rolled in a groove that had been carved in the front of the cave to, to guard. And so the purpose was to guard this, very heavy, hard to move, to guard this from wild animals who'd be coming to, to eat the body or from uh, grave robbers, which was a huge problem in the first century. And then, and then a year later, after the burial, you would come back, the body would be decomposed by this time, you would collect all the bones, put them in a special box called an ossuary, and that would stay in this family cave. And so this one 
tomb could hold the whole family. Right? So, so, so what's happened when Jesus arrives, this is what's happened in the last four days, that, that this, this body has been prepared, it's been taken to the family cave, and since uh, uh, in, in ancient times uh, in Israel that, that when someone would die, this was a community event. So your family and friends would come, they would help mourn with you for maybe a week or, or longer. And so there's a lot of people there. And so uh, when Jesus is coming back into the, this is the scene that he's stepping into. All right, so let's see what happens. So on his arrival, Jesus finds that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. All this has taken place now. And he says, now Bethany, this village where they lived, was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of the brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he's at the edge of town, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. And so we saw this last week, that, that Martha wants to talk to Jesus, she wants to see him. And uh, when she gets there, uh, this is what she's going to say. She says, Lord... Uh, she said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so we talked about this last week, that this may have simply been a statement of fact, that, hey, if you'd been here, you could have healed them. But uh, chances are, at least the way I read that, the chances are that given what Jesus said when he first got the message that this will not end in death, given the fact that he didn't come and he delayed, given the fact he didn't speak a, work of, a word of healing from distance, I think chances are that there's a lot of confusion here. Perhaps there's a lot of hurt, and perhaps there's an unstated question of, so why didn't you come? We talked about that last week. And so, next, she's, uh, next she says, but, you know, even though you didn't come, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Now, this is interesting, because on the surface, this sounds like what she's saying is that I think, I believe that even now you could ask God, he could raise him from the dead. But what we're going to see as we go on is that's clearly not what she means. And so what we think is going on here is that, that what she's really saying is even though you didn't come and, and heal him, I still believe in you. I still believe you're the Messiah. I still believe this unique relationship with the Father, that he'll do what you've asked. You have this supernatural power. And so Jesus responds to her and says, says Martha, your brother will rise again. Now, in the first century in Israel, most Jews believed that the end of time, there would be uh, a great resurrection of the dead to prepare us for the next age that's coming. And so when Jesus says this, your brother will rise, she assumes that's what he's talking about, that, hey, at the end of time, you'll see him again. Often, like we would say in memorial services today, or to someone who's lost someone, well, well at least you'll see him again, right? And so that's what, what he says. That's what she assumes he means. Very likely, people have been saying this to her all week long. And so Jesus, uh, Martha answered, yeah, I know he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. But now Jesus says something to her very profound. This is the fifth of seven great I am statements in the, uh, in the Gospel of John. He says, Mary, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And the one who believes in me will live even if they die. 
Something happens to us when we come to Jesus and something is transformed. We, we cross over from life to death, as he said back in chapter five, and, and the, that you may physically die, but your relationship with God, this new life you've received, it just go, you're just gonna go on. The death is not the end. You just step over into what the apostle Paul calls life that's truly life. And he says, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He says, do, do you believe this? So he says, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. We'll come back to that later. But, but you, do, do you believe this? And I, I, I'm sure, I don't think Martha really understands everything he's saying. But what she knows is she trusts him. She believes in him. And so she makes this great statement. She says, I believe. Yes, Lord. I, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, which was in the first century, another way of referring to Messiah. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world, that was prophesied, right? And so, so that kind of ends their conversation. Now catch this, I'm sure that was a much longer conversation than this. John's just giving us the highlights, the thing he wants to focus on, but they're obviously gonna have a longer conversation than like three sentences. And so, uh, but at this point, Jesus wants to talk with Mary one-on-one -on -one right now. So he's going to send Martha back to get her. And so um, after she had said this, verse 28, she went back and she called her sister Mary. And she said, hey, the teacher is here. He's asking for you. And so Mary's going to get up and she's going to go quickly to go to him. Now, when, when she gets up to go, everyone with her, all these friends and mourners, they're assuming she's going out to the grave in order to, to mourn there. Like, you know, like we would go to uh, a graveside to bring flowers or to, uh, to remember there. And so they're going to get up and, and go with her. So when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went, went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village. He's still outside of town. Graves would have been on the outside of town because they're considered unclean. And so Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. So he's, he's waited out there. And so when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, they comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the, to the tomb to mourn. And so when Mary reaches the place where Jesus was, um, she's going to fall at his feet. She's obviously deeply, is extremely emotional. Um, she is, is really upset. We're gonna see, she's going to fall at his feet. We're going to see in a second she's sobbing. The, the Greek is very strong. She's just... She is beside herself, and she's going to say the same thing to Jesus that her sister had said when she first saw Jesus, um, that if you were here, this would not have happened, which suggests to me that this is what they've been saying all week long. And so uh, she falls at his feet, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so when Jesus saw her weeping, and in the Greek, it's very strong, she's it's such little tears, it's She's, she's sobbing, she's crying hard. Uh, and when he saw the Jews who had come with her also weeping, so just picture this scene, I mean, everyone's sobbing. It's just very troubled scene. He's deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now we're gonna see this a couple times. In the next few verses, we're gonna watch as Jesus is deeply moved and John says troubled by, by what's happening. Now, what's interesting is we don't really know for sure what John means by he is deeply moved. Uh, on the one hand, just if a cursory reading, you'd assume, well, he's, he's just really sad because he's lost his friend, like, like the sisters are sad. But of course, we know that he's about to raise the dead. We, he knows that, right? 
So it doesn't make any sense. He's sobbing over the loss of a friend who in a half an hour he's going to be raising from the dead. So something deeper is going on. It's interesting because in the Greek, this word for deeply moved, it's often used to describe anger. And so it's really interesting. There's an anger. There's a, we, we don't really understand. But the, the main thing I want you to use, you might imagine scholars have a lot of different theories about this. But we're not really told. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time with that. What I want you to catch, though, is a couple things. How emotional Jesus was and how honest with his emotions he was. You know, sometimes we've been taught that as, as believers, we should always be stoic. That's not what we see in the Bible. Like we see that Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man. And we see here in all his humanity, something is deeply troubling him here. And so, um, so he says in verse 34, hey, where have you laid him? Where's the, where's the family tomb? And they said, well, come and see. And so they begin to, to walk towards that. And Jesus begins weeping. And the Jews, you know, looking at him and say, see how he loved him. Of course, they don't know he's going to raise him from the dead. They're just like, wow, he just really loved him. This loss is really hitting him hard. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Remember, we're only two to three months out from Hanukkah. Remember, at Hanukkah, Jesus had been in Jerusalem. John chapter 9, he had healed this man who had been born blind since they all knew that. And so they're kind of thinking, like the sisters, I mean, couldn't he have healed him? Like if he could open the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have just healed him? Why is he so sad? And so Jesus, once more deeply moved, there we go again, he comes to the tomb. So he arrives at the tomb. It sounds like it's a, it's a tomb very likely that Jesus will catch us soon be buried in himself. Very likely within a month. This may be an insight into why he's deeply moved. Like the, what he's seeing in this event. But he's deeply moved. He comes in. It sounds like the, 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 the tomb where he was buried was a cave. It had this stone laid across the entrance. We talked about that. And so as we get there, I want you to picture everyone's sobbing. Everyone's mourning. Emotion is thick. Jesus has been weeping. And Jesus turns to Martha and he says, take away the stone. Now, this is a really bad idea. This is where culturally we're, very, we're way too far away. But the body's been in there for four days. It's going to be extremely ripe by now. The stench is going to be horrendous. The last thing you want to do is remove the stone that's sealing that cave and let the stench out. Like when you, when you bury someone you love, you want to remember them the way they were. You, you don't want to picture them in a state of decomposition. And so uh, she's there with all his family and friends and mourners. This would be horrible. Take away the stone. What are you talking about? This is going to be awful. Can, can you imagine the, the gossip's going to run through the city? They take away the stone. Everyone's gagging. And now they're, they're reminded this one they love is decomposing and it's going to hit them at a new, 
the loss is going to hit him. This is terrible. And so Martha is going to push back. Martha seems to be, most scholars believe that Martha is the older of the two sisters. The brother is, is God now, so apparently she's the head of the family. And so Martha is the lead in this whole story. And so Martha's going to push back. Like, Jesus, this is not a good idea. Like, I, I know you're like the Messiah, but um, maybe you don't know how dead bodies work. Um, and so she says, um, and notice, notice what John says, but Lord said Mar- Martha, and then he describes Martha as the sister of the dead man. Like John, from this point on, he's not going to call him Lazarus for a while. Till he's alive. He's a dead man. And John wants us to be really clear. So he says that the sister of the dead man. And she, so she pushes back, says, by this time there's a bad odor. For he's been in, in, he's been in there for four days. And so in the Greek, it's much stronger. It's more like this is going to stink to high heaven. <laughs> like this is a bad idea. And, uh, and so Jesus asks her a great question. And I want you to highlight this, underline it, circle it, do something to mark. We're going to come back to it later. But he asked her this great question. He says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Now, this is interesting because there's no record in our text of him saying this to her prior to this. So he's either referring, remember when the messenger first went to Jesus, the one that you loved is sick and Jesus, he's, oh, this is not going to end in death. This is for God's glory. It's possible that that's what Jesus was referring to. Maybe they've had conversation about that. Uh, it, maybe that during their earlier conversation that same day, he had said this. We don't know when. But he, he says, he takes her back to a, something he told her. And he said, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? And so she's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, no pun intended, but she's stuck like, like, what do I do? I've got this family and friends, this is a disaster, or do I trust what Jesus is telling me? And, and so she decides to trust him, and so she gives the nod, right? And so you got to picture some, some several men probably going to the stone and beginning to roll this very heavy stone back. And I'm telling you, this is high drama at this point. Like, if, if you're there, no one's going to the bathroom or going out for popcorn, you know? <laughs> it's like, every eye is locked. I can picture people starting to back up and holding those, right? This is like, like, you don't want to miss it, but this is horrible. And so, before he does anything, Jesus is going to speak, but not to the crowd, not to the sisters. He's going to speak to God. What, what he wants this, what, what's, he knows what's about to happen. What he, he wants the, the people there to connect the dots. That what's about to happen is not his idea. Remember what Jesus said that I do nothing of my own initiative. I only do what the Father shows me. He, he wants him to, so what's about to happen is he's doing in conjunction with his Father. And this is his father bearing witness to who Jesus is as his son. He wants us to be very clear. So he's going to pray, but he's not really praying for his sake or even the father's sake. He's praying for their sake. And so he, he, uh, he looks up to the heavens and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. 
Notice not that you're hearing me, but you've heard, he's already had this conversation before. I, I knew that you always hear me. I know that. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here so that they may believe that you have sent me. And after he prays this, he calls out in a loud voice. He says, Lazarus, come out. And I'm telling you, every eye is locked on that dark, that dark hole at the front of the cave. And all of a sudden, unbelievably, this man who is completely tied up in grave clothes comes shuffling out. Can you picture the, the fear, the awe, that this, isn't, this can't be happening? And as he comes out, shuffling out, that fear, that awe, that shock begins to fade from disbelief to belief. And it, it turns to joy. It turns to gladness. It turns to laughter. And I can just picture the sisters going up because the next thing Jesus is going to say is, as the dead man came out, his hands, his feet are wrapped with strips of linen, a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes. Let him go. And can you imagine, I'm sure it was his sisters going forward and carefully taking off that face cloth. It's been, and it's him. It's him. It's him and he's alive and he's got color in his cheeks and he's healthy. And in that moment, they're no longer in the middle. They're no longer, like, all of a sudden, it is all coming together for them. What Jesus said about the sickness is not the death, it's for the glory of God. What he said about your brother will rise, why he delayed. What he said about, didn't I tell you if you believe, you see the, like in that flash, it all comes together. And these sisters are no longer in the middle. And can you imagine that joyous reunion, the tears, the laughter, the hugging. And I got a picture, picture Lazarus looking up and looking for the one who called him and catching the eyes of his friend. A powerful, powerful moment. I was going to call this message Dead Man Walking. So next week, we're going to watch as the crowd's going to respond in distinctly different ways. Friends and foes will, will respond very differently as this news begins to, to ripple, not through the, just the crowd, but back into Jerusalem. Next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to see how people respond to this, this uh, seventh sign of Jesus. But for today, what I want to do in the time that we have together today is I, I want to uh, ask just two key questions that flow out of this passage. You know, normally we have some principles and then some questions, but today we don't have time for the principles. We're just jumping to the questions, right? So uh, there in your note sheet, you have a section. This is called signs, the seventh sign. And I have two questions that flow out of this for our lives. The first question is one that we've 
actually asked before in this series, like early on in this series, but I want to come back to it today at the seventh sign. And the question is, how big is your Jesus? How big is your Jesus? And so let's set this up. I, 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 first, first thing I want to do is I want to set this, this uh, miracle, this, this sign, uh, in its larger context in the Gospel of John. So if you were here back when we started this series, you may remember this back in January. We started with three weeks where he spent on the intro to John's Gospel, the first 18 verses. And if you, if you were here, then you'll, you'll remember that, that in these first 18 verses, John introduces Jesus to us. He makes these amazing claims about who Jesus is. And that what he's really doing in this gospel is he's telling us, here, let, me, let me tell you the, the story of the life and the teaching of Jesus with special focus on these seven supernatural signs that Jesus performed that, that John is picking. For the many signs, he picks out seven that kind of help us to understand who Jesus is and why he came and lead the path of life. And so, so this is the, the seventh sign. This is the final sign that Israel is going to get before his arrest and execution. Now, after his, his uh, execution, he will rise from the dead, which will be the eighth and ultimate sign, the sign of the new creation. But prior to his arrest, Prior to his execution, he's come to Israel as their Messiah. There are seven signs, and this is the ultimate one. So, so we've watched through as John has laid out these seven signs. Do you remember this? Back in chapter 2, we watched as Jesus uh, turns water into wine. Uh, we watched in chapter 4 as uh, he heals the son of a royal official with a word, a son who's dying, with a word. Uh, he heals this boy who's 16 miles away back at Capernaum. In chapter 5, we watch as Jesus walked through the pools of Bethesda uh, there in Jerusalem, and he went to a man who's been lame for 38 years and instantly restored him to hell. Uh, we get to chapter 6, we watch as Jesus uh, uh, took five loaves and two fishes, and he fed 5,000 men and their families. Then we watch later in that same chapter is in the middle of the night, Jesus walked on water and calmed the storm, powers over nature. And then in chapter nine, we watch as Jesus came back to Jerusalem during uh, Hanukkah and he heals this man who's been blind since youth. We, we watch like these six signs, but this is the finals of the seven. The, Everything's leading up to this sign. This ability, who is Jesus? He is the one who has the power to speak life. And of course, this is what John claimed about Jesus in his intro. He's been backing it up all the way through, but this is the ultimate sign that's kind of pointing to who Jesus is. In fact, there in your note sheet, remember, this is how John starts his gospel. It's how he started the intro in chapter one. He said, in the beginning was the what? The word, the, the communicator, the, the one who communicates to us, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was what? Where was God? This huge claim, right, that there's a time and a place when the God who created all time and space entered into creation, became part of the human race to rescue us, to reveal himself, and to give us life. That's the claim of the intro. And look how he continues. He says, through him, all things were made. He is the creator. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was what? Life. 
life. So this is the claim, that there was a time and a place when the God who created all time and space entered into his creation at a certain point in human history. He, he became part of our race to rescue us and to reveal God and lead us. That's the claim. And today is the seventh and final sign before his arrest that what Jesus is claiming about himself is true. And so the question then is, well, so how big is our Jesus? Now, it's interesting because in this conversation that Jesus has with Martha before, before they go to the tomb, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will never die and so on. And so he asks Martha at the end of that, he says, do you believe this? And you remember what she said, I, I, yes, I believe. I believe that you're the Messiah. You're the son of God who's been sent into the world. So I want you to catch this. She had a very high view of Jesus. Would you agree with me? Very high view. But catch this, it was not high enough. And through this seventh sign, her view of Jesus is going to go higher. And that's the point of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is trying to introduce us to Jesus and who he really is. And here's what I want you to catch. The longer we follow Jesus, the bigger our Jesus should get. And, of course, the corollary is the bigger your Jesus, the smaller your problems. And so, and so today we watch as through this seventh sign, her understanding of Jesus is going to go to a whole new level. And this is God's vision for our life. As we follow him, as we listen and follow him, our view of Jesus should be growing Larger. Now, this leads to the second question then. What is Jesus asking you to believe? What is Jesus asking you to believe? Now, at this point in your life, you may say, you know, I, I don't sense him asking me to believe anything new right now. And that very well may be true. Uh, there are certain seasons in our life where, where Jesus wants to take our view of him to a whole new level, and so he asks us to believe something new, something that may seem too big, something that may seem too impossible, something that doesn't seem like it will work. And so you may not be at that spot today, and if you're not there today, that's fine. Just take good notes for the day when it comes. But this is what happens to Martha. For Martha, it's one of those times in her life that she has this conversation with Jesus, right? And, and he, he asks her this powerful question. He, he, he says, take a roll away the stone. And, and she thinks this is a bad idea. We've talked about this. This is a horrible idea. Can you imagine the social faux pas? If she gives the order for the stone to be rolled away for her brother 
and the stench comes pouring out and everyone is just grossed out and moved to tears. And like, this is horrible, right? Like, like imagine you're at a funeral and, and there's like a live body there, right? But it hasn't been prepared and somewhere to go, hey, let's take the lid off. Can you imagine, like, who would do that? And you take the lid off and there's like a, a body that's starting to decompose there and the stench, can you imagine? I mean, it would be going viral, right? Like, who does this? And so she's, she's there. She's in charge. Jesus says, take the stone away. She's saying, this is a bad idea. This could go south in so many ways. This story is going to run through Jerusalem about this crazy woman who takes the stone away after four days. Who would do that? And it was just this horrible sight, and everyone started bawling because they caused them to picture this body that's now, they can picture rotting away this man that they loved. And so Jesus says, he asked her this great question. It's there in your notes. She says, Didn't, did, not, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Right, so she has a choice to make. Does she trust Jesus and roll the stone away though it seems like such a bad idea? Or does she tell the Messiah no? It's a tough decision, right? But fortunately, she makes the right one. She decides, I'm gonna trust him. I don't understand why my brother died. I don't understand why he didn't come. I don't understand why he said that he would live, that this sickness was not unto death, and then he died. But, I'm, but I believe in him. And I, I believe that he is the Messiah. And I, and I believe that the Father does hear him. And so this seems crazy, but I'm going to trust him. And because she trusts him, she sees the glory of God and catches her faith and her, her, her view of Jesus goes to a whole new level. Now, here's what I want you to catch. There are times in our lives, and not all the time, but there are times in our life when Jesus tells us to do something that seems crazy. Something that in our mind seems this is impossible, it will never work. I, I was thinking last night, just as, as teaching, just an example came to mind. I don't know if you remember, I think it's like Luke five or six, somewhere in there, that it's very early in the ministry of Jesus. So he didn't know his disciples really well. And, He asked Peter one day, hey, can I use your boat to teach? The crowds are getting so big. And so Peter takes him out there. And then afterwards, it's the middle of the day. He says, hey, let's go out and let the nets down and go fishing. This is crazy. Fishermen in Galilee don't fish in the middle of the day. The the fish can see the nets. You fish early in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. You you fish when 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 it's dark. You don't fish. They'd been fishing the night before, hadn't caught a thing. And so Peter says to him, uh... Yeah, this is not really a great idea. And, uh, but then he says, um, but if it's what you want, we can do it. Like he's trying to like tactfully tell Jesus, this is a horrible idea. But I realize you're sort of like a pastor and pastors don't live in the real world. So, um, you know, if you want me to, I can do this. It's really ridiculous. And Jesus says, let's just do it. And you remember when they let down the nets that, 
They're so full of fish, they had to call their friends. The nets were ripping. They'd taken two. But remember, this is like that moment for Martha. It's like, this it, it makes no sense. And Jesus says, trust me. And here's what I want you to catch. Sometimes in our life, there's, not, it doesn't happen all the time, but there are times where Jesus asks us to take a step of faith. He asks us to take a step of obedience. He asks us to trust him in something that on the surface makes no sense. But when we do, we see the glory of God. And our view of him goes to a whole new level. So let me, I was thinking about that this week. And just back in my early life, you know, as a, as a young believer, like 19 years old, I'm thinking just two or three examples from my early days that really shaped kind of a, my walk with Jesus and, and my whole relationship with him. And I, I, remember, I remember as a, a sophomore in college driving back to the Midwest to go to school. And, and I remember out of the blue, and I won't go into the story, but just out of the blue, I felt like God was clear with me. I was to drop out of school and I was to go home and marry Lynn. It was like, what? Like, I'm not that sort of guy. I'm the sort of guy that would finish college first, do things in the right order, right? Didn't have a job, didn't have any savings. I went home and three months later, we got married three weeks before, didn't have a job still. And God just blessed and God provided. By the way, I'm not recommending this. My fear, my fear is always some 19-year-old, well, Pastor Michael did it, and so I think that I don't have a job. I don't even have a girl, but I'm going to ask her. Uh, yeah. Let's see, see what God does. He's going to throw away the stone, Jesus, you know. Um, so I'm not saying this is normative, right? But you have your own stories. I remember a year and a half later, Two years later, we've now been married for two years, and against all odds, she's finished her nursing degree, hardly any debt, $600 of debt. And, and we, I felt like God was calling us back to the Midwest for me to finish my education. It was February. We had less than $1,000. Roll away the stone. I remember when we got there, just really needing a job. And uh, so I was looking for a job in my field at the time, which was forklift operator. <laughs> and I remember, I remember this great job opportunity. They loved me, they loved my resume. And it was a great prize. And it's just like God's providing. And it came to the last interview. And they asked me a very pointed question about my health. And I knew. I knew if I told the truth, I would lose that job. Hey, roll away the stone. Right? What I'm saying is that there are times in our life where the Lord comes to us, and it doesn't happen all the time, but he says, okay, this is your next step. This is how I'm going to grow in your eyes. This is how you're going to see. And he calls us, like maybe, maybe you're single, maybe you're dating, and you're in a relationship, but but you know it's not right, and Jesus is calling you to leave that relationship, and yeah, but what if I don't find someone else? Roll away the stone. Jesus is talking with you about your finances. You know, we don't talk a lot about 
finances and giving here. It's not like, that's not kind of our style. But you know, there are times, and, it, and so, so for some of you, like, the Lord is gonna come to you at some point in your life, and I want you to trust me in this. You, you need to start honoring me with your finances. You need to start giving generously to my kingdom. He may call you to start tithing. And how many stories have I heard of the year of people say, we can't do that, we can't afford that, it doesn't work out, and yet they, they take that step and they watch God provide. And they see the glory of God and he says, roll away the stone. You know, for some of you, there may come a time where he calls you to, hey, it's time to make that move across the country. I know it's scary, I know it's big, but, but it's time, I've got a plan for you. And you're not sure how it's all gonna work out, but you know. And just be clear, let me be super clear here. We've all heard stories of people who've decided to do stupid things <laughs> that God has not called them to do, and it ends badly, amen? Right? Hey, I'm just going off my medication. Okay, well, hey, Fred was such a nice guy, too. And uh, like we've, all, we've all heard stories like that, right? Where he's going, well, I'm just going to claim this, and I'm going to do this. And there's a difference when God is calling us, and we're just doing something stupid and ask him to, block, to, to back our play. Now, I'm not saying that. But it, when God calls you, and you sense Jesus calling, roll away the stone. Maybe it's an issue of integrity, like that, that, that test I had to go through with that job. There's, there's something that's happening in your job, and you know if you tell the truth that there's going to be a price to pay. You could lose your job. But he's calling you to something. What I want you to catch is in these times where Jesus comes, and he asks us to trust him, and we do, what happens is we see the impossible we see the glory of God, and our view of Jesus gets bigger. Amen? So, so what is Jesus asking you to believe? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as a church, and this is such a moving story, such a moving event. What would it be like to, to be there, to have seen it firsthand, to watch you speak life to the dead, kind of authenticating who you are. And Lord, we, we want our view of you to grow, Lord. And we just confess that many times our view of you is way too small. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd be opening the eyes of our heart, that we might see you in all your fullness, your, your love, your grace, your mercy, your power, your, your bigness as creator. And that, Lord, that, that in those times where you call us to trust you for something that looks impossible from our, from our end, that we would do what Martha did. We would trust you, and as a result, we'd see the glory of God, and our view of you would grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.